When I worked in the city, I often went uh, to place, the, I took the VRE in, but when I got into the city and I had to go to another place, I often went from one place to another by taking the metro. And I'm one of those weird people who actually liked riding the metro. Not so much anymore, I'm too big, too sweaty, it's just not a thing. <laughs> But I loved it, right? So many exciting things happened on the Metro. I once a fight between two men on the Metro. It was like, it was like 11 o'clock at night. It was about to close, and these two guys were going at it. Never mind the fact that they were like 90 years old and they were hitting each other with their walking canes. But I broke that fight up, right? It was really funny and a lot of fun. Uh, another time I was riding the Metro and there was a high school band and a dance team that was visiting from another school district, like another state, and, and they did a small flash mob thing, Metro Terminal. Remember, remember when those things were like, like really popular? Ever since then, I was like, man, am I gonna be a part of a flash mob again? Like I, I just anticipated it, I looked forward to it. There's always fun stuff happening on the Metro. But one of my favorite things to do on the Metro is to watch for the tourists who get on. Right? Have you been there, right? You, you can spot them a mile away, especially when you're in the city every day, like I was, right? You, you can see them a mile away. They get on, and they always sit in the same spot, and that's right next to the map. They sit right next to the map, and every five seconds, not even, Right, every like three seconds, they're like looking at the map to make sure that they're, they're headed in the right direction, that they're going to get to the right stop. And, but the one thing that always gives them away more than anything else is simply their smile. Right? They're excited. They're pumped. They're actually, besides me, the happy people to be on the metro. They're, they're laughing. They're excited. Their kids are like, you know, trying to sit backwards on the train because that's fun, right? They're doing all these different things. They are wide-eyed, and they cannot wait to see what the day has in store from, for them as they go on their vacation from one museum to the next museum or one park to the next park. And everyone else, well, they don't actually have that same excitement, Right? You look around, you, you have, you have you know, a few people appear from the looks on their faces and from their body language. Just in everyday life, how often, or how not often, how, how few people actually look like they're actually truly happy. Just from the, the look on their face, I, I know there's a term for that, but uh, I'm not going to say it. And then uh, how, how their body is, right? They just don't look to be really happy. As you're driving down 395 tomorrow morning in rush hour traffic, look around at the cars that are next to you on the highway and, and just look at their faces. Are they smiling? No. <laughs> no, right? No. Right? When, when you're walking in the grocery store or the shopping malls and you look around, what do you usually see? Right? Especially this time of year when things are starting to ramp up, you see uh, face after face just, just looking tired. It's the end of the year. They're worn out. Parents are chasing down one gift after another gift, whatever. They're worn out. They're just drained of any emotion. Right? All the emotion has been sucked down to them at that you know, 100th school band concert. Right? Right? You, you can go for hours in Northern Virginia without encountering a single, truly happy, joyful person. Right? Let's, life gets more serious as we get older, doesn't it? 
And we, we know that, but, but I, I think that even kids are not as carefree as they once were, and especially students, right? Kids, the, young, the little kids and the students are young adults, right? One of, one of my nieces is in high school, and the things that she talks to me and Christina about, mostly Christina, because I just tell her to get over it, <laughs> are about her worries, her thoughts, her concerns. And listen, they're so serious, Right, when I was in high school, I worried about a few things. Right, when, when I was going to get my next slice of pizza with my buds, right, when was the game on, or what, what was the next activity we were all going to hang out together at, or, or how many girls liked me because I was a stud. Right? That's all I had to worry about. I'm joking there. Right? <laughs> but today, students, they got a lot, man. It's a lot more serious. And when we, as a church, as a community, when we start to realize that younger people are not having as much fun as they really are entitled to have, well, maybe that should bring us to our knees in prayer and dedication to God to figure out what the real issue is. Let's just think about it, right? Here's the question. Why can't we be joyful anymore? Why can't we be joyful anymore? You know, yesterday, I'm going to admit, and I'm going to rat out Christina, all right? I know it's not even Thanksgiving yet, but she decorated for Christmas at our house, all right? She decorated for Christmas. I didn't know. I was taking a nap. I spoke at that thing with the counselors in the morning. I went home. I took a nap, and next thing you know, I wake up, and the house is decorated, all right? She, she got me, all right? And, and why did she do it? Because, and this is a quote. She wanted some joy. She wanted some joy. She just wanted to be happy. So she decorated for Christmas. So why can't we be joyful anymore? Sure, there are a lot of things that we could blame it on. The, I mean, just, I mean, right? The economy is not as promising as it once was. Violence is now a common topic of conversation in our homes, whether it be here in our neighborhoods or abroad in all the wars that are going on and in the conflicts going on all over. There's so much pressure and confusion surrounding sex and sexual identity and the, the worldly rules that seem to change faster than we can keep up with. And it's just a lot. And what about more personal things? Things like, like sickness or, or, or the unplanned diagnosis. If they're ever planned. They're not really planned. That was a bad typo there. Right, the, the, the unexpected diagnosis, the, the, the unexpected pain, or maybe it's a marriage. The expectations that you set up in that marriage are not being met, and it's painful to live in that situation. Or maybe it's just money. There's too much month left at the end of your paycheck. All right? So it's stress. Right? There just seems to be a lot going on, and there's no way that we can have joy in the midst of that. So let me, let me zoom out and let's look at it like this, or let's look at it through the lens of someone else. A, the, a man who knew such pain was President Abraham Lincoln. One of my goals is to read uh, a couple biographies of every president uh, that we've had in our history. And, and Abraham Lincoln, of course, is the one that has the most, so you kind of read a little bit more about him. Uh, so, so, man, this, this guy, when he, he knew what this was, 
Right? When, when he was seven years old, his family forced, were forced out of their home, and he went to work. When he was nine, his mother died. He lost his job as a store clerk when he was 20. He wanted to go to law school with everything that he had, right? but he just didn't have like the foundational education needed to get into law school. At age 23, Abraham Lincoln, he went into debt to be a partner in a small store, but three years later, the business partner died, and he had to incur his debt, and the resulting debt total took years and years to repay. Well, Abraham Lincoln, old Abe, was 28 after courting a girl for four years. Oh, man, I feel it for this guy. <laughs> after courting a girl for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she turned him down. Rascal, right? <laughs> Not to mention all the times that he tried and he failed miserably to run for office. Local governments, district government, that kind of thing. If anyone should have forgotten how to have joy... How to have real joy, it should have been Abraham Lincoln. But then, get this, in the fall of 1863, Abraham, old Abe, he issued two landmark statements. The first was what? Do we know any history buffs? The Gettysburg Address in which Lincoln commemorated the battlefield of Gettysburg. Right? We've all heard it, or we've, we've studied it in school, or we, we've heard parts of it, right? And Lincoln stood on a battlefield of the blood war our young nation had ever known and would ever know. There was no need and what felt like no possible way to have joy in that moment. But then, the other statement, which he kind of relayed a little bit, made just weeks before that, points us to where we can find joy in the midst of Sadness Foundry Church. On October 3rd, right, the same fall, 1863, President Lincoln instituted the first official Thanksgiving Day holiday. Right? And so Lincoln, he wrote this. He wrote, it seemed to me fit and proper that the gracious gifts of the Most High God, the God that we forge our life on, should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and, and one voice by the whole American people. Old Honest Abe. Right? Setting the groundwork for what we know today as Thanksgiving. Right, so Lincoln set apart the last Thursday of November, I mean, there's some evolution there, a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father, he said. To our beneficent Father God, the God that we forge our life on. Apparently, in the midst of the worst war our nation had ever seen, Lincoln thought it was time was ripe. That time was ready for gratitude, for a hashtag, attitude of gratitude type of situation. So, so is that the answer to our question? As we approach this day that Lincoln marked for Thanksgiving, and, and as we find ourselves being and feeling just not so joyful, and searching for even just one thing thankful for, and maybe the answer is, Thankfulness. I get this, guys. Right? Thankfulness. And look, like, and if if thankfulness is the answer to those of us seeking joy, how does it work? 
right? How, how does it really work? I mean, do we just have, like, listen to what our parents told us when we were younger and we, we remember to say thank you every time someone is nice to us? Is that talking about? Or should we write more of those thank you note cards? Because I got to be honest. Every time I try to write a thank you note, the person who receives it, they're probably not thankful because they're not going to be able to read it. <laughs> right? All right, so what's the big deal? What does being thankful do to bring me, as a creation of God, as a community, a local outpost, us together, so not just us individually, but us together, what does it do to bring us joy? To bring me joy. Well, not to surprise anybody here, but I think the answer to this question is found in the Bible. All right, so if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Luke. All right, now let me just give you a little bit of context. Matthew, Mark, Luke. All right, so, so we're going to the book of Luke. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. All right, and each of the stories of the New Testament are different uh, accounts. They're not separate. They're, they're all of the same, the different tellings of the same story from different guys. And Luke, he's one of my favorites because he was a doctor and he gave details. All right, and so that's what we're going to look at today. So go ahead and turn to the 17th chapter. Luke, again, is that third book in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those Bibles with you. Uh, those Bibles, there's different colors. You can look around after the service, but you can take those with you. They're for you to have, to use, to take. You can give them away as well. But we're going to be in Luke. And as we pick up the story of Jesus' life smack in the middle of his ministry is where we're going to be. He's doing amazing things. He's telling parables left and right so people know what he's about, right? He's healing people. He's telling the religious leaders to get it together. Like literally, like, like this is the part of the Bible, the part of Luke, where he's like, get it together. Like he's like that, you know, get it together, people. Right? Everything is going great. So let's, let's pick this up and let's look at Luke 17 and, and see what, what we have to see here in Luke chapter 17. All right, verse 11 says this. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Just let me pause. All right, so Luke is recording that Jesus and his followers are on their way to Jerusalem for the last time to celebrate one of the Jewish traditions, which, which we know to be Passover. Right? He, he's going there to celebrate. However, in order to get there, he, they had to pass through the region between Samaria and Galilee. All the way to Jerusalem were, were these small towns and these villages that, that traveling caravans could stop in. They could rest in. There was hotels. There, they could get supplies, and then they could continue on their journey. And just like you drive down 95, right? There's small little towns with like a hotel and a, and a what is it, Huddle House, right? right? A Waffle House. Waffle House is better than Huddle House. Just want to make sure we're clear on that. <laughs> See, it's just like that, right? You could stop in, you get supplies, and then you continue on their journey. But we don't exactly know which village Jesus, our Lord, entered into. But we do know that, that who was there waiting for him when he arrived. All right, let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 13. It says, And as he entered a village, 
He was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. All right, keep your finger right there. All right, they, there were 10 lepers there to welcome Jesus. Just to clarify, guys, not the animal. <laughs> lepers, all right? Right, and, and leprosy, lepers, they, that means they had a disease, leprosy, that still exists today. It's a horrible skin disease in which the skin slowly um, decays and it deteriorates over time. We don't know if that is exactly what these 10 people had since the word leprosy back then was, was literally used for any skin disease at that time. But regardless of what they actually had, what their exact diagnosis was, they, they would have been social outcasts. They, they, would, have been the, they would have been the weirdos. Right? They would have been sent away. Right? Not, not allowed to be in our midst at aha. Right? We don't know if, if that's exactly what they had, but they, they were definitely in that leprosy category. They were outcasts. They were sent away. In fact, if you were diagnosed as having a skin disease, you were as good as dead, like six feet under. Right? And your death sentence was carried out a little bit at a time. Because leprosy would eat away at your skin, so it was, it was like a, a, an arm now that became useless, and skin literally falling off, uh, a leg doing the same thing, literally an ear falling off the side of your head. Pretty cool, guys, right? Looking at you guys. Oh. <laughs> All right? Just literally falling off. By law, you were forced to leave your family, your friends, your job, and live only with others who had the skin condition disease that you had. They were quarantined together and not allowed to have any contact with other people. In fact, if you happened to venture into a place where there were other people, you were supposed to yell something. You, by law, were supposed to yell, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm unclean, stay away, I'm clean. So that people wouldn't accidentally come in contact with you or even come near your presence. They were probably living, these, these 10 lepers were probably living outside of the city gates away from anyone else that they might accidentally get sick. And because they lived on the outskirts of this small village that was well-traveled, right, where, where people would, would stop in and get the supplies, word uh, had most likely spread that a rabbi... Jesus, a teacher, that's what it means, a, a preacher and a healer above all, was about to come into their city on his way to Jerusalem. He had healed a blind man. They probably heard about that. There were some mute men that he, he had healed. He fed thousands of people when they had no food. Could he have the power to heal a skin disease? That's what's rolling through their mind. There were... Ten wretched, forsaken, just disheartened men. They were hopeless. They had no reason for joy. They were forgotten. But then they saw Jesus. In spite of a, a hopeless disease, 
a death sentence that was slow and painful and lonely, they began to feel there was a chance to live, a chance of hope, a chance, above all else, joy again. And so they, they waited, these ten waited anxiously in anticipation at the entrance of the village for Jesus, this rabbi, to show up. Then finally, and they see a large crowd, and in that crowd, it's him. It's him. <laughs> this was the moment that they had been waiting for. This was the moment that they went all in on. And so from afar, from far away, from a distance, it says, they called out and they loved Jesus. Rabbi, Master, Jesus, have pity on us. Have pity on us. Have mercy on us. And listen to Jesus' answer. The first part of verse 14 simply says this. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Stop right there. Go and show yourself to the priest. Now, for us reading that sentence today, we might think, huh? All right, what, what's this? Well, what, what is this about? What do you mean, go present yourself to the priest? Right? Is Jesus just phoning this one in? Right? Is he just like, hey, let the priest handle this? But as Luke's readers, when we're first reading this, it would have been crystal clear what he was saying. You see, even though they had doctors back, Luke himself was a doctor, it was the priests who were given the responsibility in each community to determine whether or not someone was truly healed. If, if they were clean. Right? The, the priest had the, the job of looking over a person who once was sick to see if they were fit to rejoin society. So people would, would go to the priest at the temple and the priest checked them out and gave them a bill of health. They could go back and rejoin their family and their friends. They were restored. But notice what it doesn't say here. Right? This is a good way to read the Bible, right? When, we, when we're studying God's word. Notice what it says, because it's there on purpose, Versus what it doesn't say, right, in some different contexts. So notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say, let me heal you, and then go your, show yourselves to the priest. Right? That's not what we read, right? He doesn't say, let me make everything perfect, and then you go. That's not what it says. He just sends them on their way, and look at what happens next. I'm sure you all read ahead, because I said stop, but you didn't. Right? <laughs> So verse 14 again, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And as they went, they were cleansed. Man. Now, I envision this for a moment. Right, If these men had leprosy, like we talked about, if these men had leprosy, as we know it, they would have lost limbs, their feet would look like they were falling off, their hands were brittle and maybe even missing fingers, and, and, and they were hurting, and they were in despair. And then along the way, one of them looks at his friend and for the first time sees 
what he looks like whole. I mean, just envision this scenario. We're walking down the street. You're used to looking at me with a missing ear and a broken off neck because of my leprosy. And we're going, and all of a sudden, old Andrew's got an ear, and he's got a nose. Not a pretty nose, but a nose. Right? This is what they're doing, right? He, he sees a nose and ears that once weren't there. Can you imagine just the pure ecstasy that they were feeling as they started to look down at their very own hands and their arms when Jesus says, go, right? And they start going, and then they, they see their legs and their feet, and everything is starting to be restored and cleansed. Don't miss that, Foundry Church. I right, look. As they went, they weren't just healed, They weren't just healed, but they were cleansed. So important in this society. They were restored. On the way, they were cleansed. They weren't just healed, they were cleansed. And the original word means to literally cleanse completely in all ways. Physical, spiritual, emotional, relational. And in a Levitical sense as well, according to the Old Testament law. So they were, they were cleansed by the law. Right? They, 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 were, they were innocent by the law. All right, Jesus sent them on their way, and as they went, he took every part of them that made them have to shout, unclean, unclean, right? and he washed it away. He cleansed their shame. He cleansed their sorrow. He cleansed their relationships that they're about to restore. All right, because if I was one of them, I'd be lining it right home, right? All right, he, he cleansed everything. They're just not just their physical, but everything. And he, he cleansed their standing in society. He washed it away. I mean, what an amazing God that we serve, Foundry Church. Right, Because this God, the God that we serve, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, our Lord Jesus is still doing this today. Now all that they had to do, what did they have to do? They had to present themselves to the priest. They would have been able to return to their spouses, to their children, to their friends and loved ones like returning home after years of being in isolation. Listen, there, there was hope on the horizon when we read this story. But then, then something even more incredible happened, as if it could only, like, it just it can't get better, but it does. Right? Something that Luke had to write down. He had to write it down. And when he heard this story being read, he said to himself, I've got to make sure people know what happened next. So look at, again, Luke chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. And again, right, if you don't have a Bible, you can use those Bibles in the seats in front of you, and you can take those with you. They're free for you to have and to use. So Luke 15, verse 15 of chapter 17 says this, Then one of them, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, Verse 16, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, all right? 
giving thanks to him. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now he was different. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you what? Well. Again, man, I want you to, again, envision this moment of the story. Right? Just, just picture this moment. This, this one man who has finally, maybe after many, 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 many years been healed, stops and deep down, some him tells him, you have to go back. You have to go back. He knew that he, he needed to pause and return to Jesus and give him the thanks he deserved. And so he stopped. This man, this one man, turned around and made a beeline for Jesus. And picture this. This time, instead of yelling, what? When was he supposed to yell? I'm clean. I'm unclean. Right? <laughs> instead of doing that, he goes through the crowd probably in the closest proximity of people that he's been in for years, and with a loud voice, he praises God. It doesn't say the words he used, but if I were him, I would be yelling, I'm clean, I'm clean. Everybody, I'm clean. Thanks be to God, God Almighty, I'm clean. I'm wholly cleaned. I'm clean. I'm clean. And when he reaches Jesus, what does he do? He, he falls at his feet. I mean, remember last time he yelled at Jesus from where? Afar, from a distance. He yells at a distance, but this time he's, he's hugging the feet of his Savior. This time he falls at the feet of the one who could only save him for now, physically, but also for eternity. And this is how I think thankfulness works, Foundry Church, to bring us joy. I think this is the answer to our question. Right? Look, thankfulness brings us close to Jesus. Thankfulness brings us close to Jesus. For this is, is how, he, how the, this, this leper is physically brought him close to Jesus. His gratitude brought him physically and spiritually close to his Savior. Right? That's, that's what we see. Now, if you're thinking, and I get it, because if, I, I think the same thing. If you're thinking, hey, saying thank you is not going to do anything for me and how close I am to God. I think it may be because we have the wrong idea about this thankfulness in this story. All right, so so let's, let's just peel that onion for just a quick minute here. Right? It's true, we should be like the one leper who came back. All right, and we're just kind of zooming back out here, getting real. We should be like that one leper who came back. We should give thanks, but thanksgiving is not just an obligation to be fulfilled. All right, track with me here. Right? It's not just an obligation to be fulfilled. God had done something for me, so now I owe him gratitude. And once I've said thank you, my debt is paid, and I can move on to something else. 
That's not what we're talking about. That is not the thankfulness that brings us closer to God. Right? Now listen, right? We give a bad rap to those other nine lepers, right? Those other nine lepers probably had that kind of thankfulness, right? I mean, think, they, they were full. I'm sure they were. How could they not have been, right? I'm sure when they finally arrived at the synagogue, they, 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 they get there, they see the priest, they at least, at the very minimum, said one thank you before they ran home. At the bare minimum, right? And I'm sure it was a lot more than that. I bet they were just, thank you, thank you, yes, Lord, thank you, all over that temple on their way home, right? right? I'm sure they were thankful, but the thankfulness that brings us close to God is like the one, one leper who came back. Look at it like this, right? That kind of thankfulness is not just thanking God for what he has done. It is rejoicing in who he is as displayed by what he has done. Because he was so thankful. <laughs> he said, my Savior, He recognizes what God has done for him and who God is. God's his Savior. God's his Lord. Jesus, this man, is the Messiah. Right? That kind of faithfulness says, I have nothing to bring to Jesus. I can't say thank you for this. I just can't. I was a leper and unclean and hopeless. I had no joy, but he loves me. This man, so he welcomed me with open arms and he cleansed me. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and all the above. All right, that kind of, of thankfulness says, I don't deserve the gift, but the mercy of the God that I forged my life on is so great, he gave it to me anyways, amen? That kind of thankfulness says, the truth is if he never does anything else for me in this world, if he does nothing else for me, he is still good, he's still powerful, and he's my savior. That's my God. That's the God that we forge our life on. Right, look at it like this again, right? Thanking God leads to seeing more of God and seeing more of our God is our greatest joy, Foundry Church. You know, my dad, he used to tell this story all the time that when he was like eight years old, he had an eye exam for the first time. And he, he tried to make out the letters on the chart in the back of the room and he got so many wrong that the doctor thought he was joking. Right? He's like, man, you, or are you just an idiot, right? And so that's, that's where he was, right? But, but this was no joke. My dad was severely blind or, or struggled with vision in his eyes. And so a week later, when, when he got his first pair of glasses, he was absolutely stunned, he said. He could read street signs for the first time. He could recognize people's faces at a distance for the first time. He could see far off like landscapes for the first time. And he said he used to think trees were just like one big piece of something, green or whatever color they were. But now he could actually see the individual leaves for the first time. Right? He, he could see more clearly than ever. That's a lot like this kind of thankfulness that we're talking about. 
Right? When we put on the glasses of thankfulness, when we put on these lenses, we start to see more of God in all of the little things in life. Right? When we have this kind of thankfulness as just a part of us, as a spiritual discipline in our lives, we start to see his provision. We start to see his grace more and more on display. We, we start to see his glory, his creativity, his majesty, and on it, we see his power on display in everything that we step into because he's our God. And no matter what's going on around us, man, no matter what's going on around us, even lepers cast out in society, even if we're broken down and we're tired, even if we feel like there's just not a lot of good going on around us or in this world, if we put on the glasses of thankfulness, we can always find a way to know more about God, the God we forge our life on, and his goodness. All right, let me give you a, a quick example uh, I read about. Matthew Henry, the famous Bible commentator, favorite I always read his commentary for every message that I write. Old school, old, like what, from the, the 1600s, 1700s, something like that. Matthew Henry, the famous Bible commentator, was robbed of his wallet once. Right, this, this like nerdy like preacher, Bible scholar type guy was, was robbed of his, his wallet once. And listen to what he wrote in his diary that night, the night that he was robbed. Uh, he was thankful for. He wrote what he was grateful for that day. Right, this is what he says. Do we have it? He was thankful that he had never been robbed before. That was the first thing he wrote on that night. And then he was thankful that he saw the hand of God guiding his steps. He was thankful that they took his wallet. They did not take his life. And then he said he was thankful that he saw the protection of God. And then he said, even though they took it all, he was thankful that it wasn't very much. Spoken like a good preacher, right? <laughs> he was thankful that he saw the provision of God. He, he was thankful that he was the one who was robbed, not the one who did the robbing. <laughs> That's funny. He saw the formation of his character by God. He was thankful for that, right? And... and, and that was it. That was the last one. So, so here's the point to all of this. In our busy schedules, pause and turn your grateful into thankful. Because there's a difference. Right? Turn your thoughts of, I'm grateful for this, and I'm grateful for that person into action, into expression, into doing something. Right, because that's what we pray. We don't want just information. We want transformation in our hearts. We want information to get down here into our hearts, but we can't even stop there. We got to kick even deeper because we're the foundry church and we do the hard work of putting that hammer down on the anvil and, and doing what we're supposed to be doing. We want to get it out into our hands and in our feet, and we want to do something with it. Right? So that's what we're talking about: turning our grateful into thankful. It is one to be grateful about something like those other nine lepers. Like, we give them a hard rap. They were grateful. They were grateful. But to be thankful about something takes action. 
It's that one leper. It takes doing something about it, just like the man who was healed. Right? This man paused and he turned his grateful into thankful. And when he did, Jesus said something to him that was even more incredible than him getting healed. Right? Jesus, his Lord, said something to him that made him thankful, not just for the rest of the day, but for the rest of his life and eternity. And it ought to cause us to be thankful for the rest of our lives as well, Foundry Church. Because again, verse 19 says, then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well completely. Literally, in the original language, this means this faith that you had has saved you. By my grace, the faith that you've had it in has saved you. Jesus says, I I don't just come here to cleanse you from a physical disease. I come for so much more than that, that you may be saved. For one man, his life changed that day he paused and he turned his grateful into thankful. Now for some of us, our life can, can change the day that we pause turn our gratefulness for what Jesus has done into thankfulness for what he has done. So I, I just want us to get super practical for you. Many of you have already made a decision to follow Jesus and give him your thanks, right? You've made that decision for him to be the Lord of your life. You've brought it from your head down into your heart. You've, 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 you've met him in the waters of baptism, like that watery grave. You've come to this new life. You've made those decisions. You've done that. But let, don't let your thankfulness stop. Right? God's mercies are new every morning. Right? So, so, so that means every morning there is something that we should fall at his feet and thank him for, even if we were robbed like Matthew Henry of our wallet. 